tonight on Arena. Marina Carr and Evangelia Regaki on their new opera about Joyce, Nora, Homer and Penelope and Oscar winner Laura Poitras on her new documentary. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. What might James Joyce have to say to Homer and Penelope and they to him if they were to strike up a conversation while he was writing Ulysses? We're about to find out in the new chamber opera, Old Ghosts. Marina Carr has written the text and composer Evangelica Regaki has composed the music in a first ever collaboration between Irish National Opera and Anu Productions. Old Ghosts has a limited run of six performances only at Molly, the Museum of Literature Ireland in Dublin from the 2nd through to the 4th of February and its grand finale is, uh, it is the grand finale of the impressive year-long Ulysses 2.2 project. Delighted that Marina Carr and Evangelia Regaki are with me in, in studio this evening. Um, I suppose, Marina, we've, we've, we know from your plays your love of the Greeks. I mean, they're all over your, your plays in some ways. Where does Joyce fit into your world? Oh, God, where does Joyce fit in? Well, you can't get very far in this country without kind of falling over him, can you? Um, particularly the last year we've had and the couple of years leading up to that. Um, I suppose I discovered him... Uh, in in college uh, when I was studying English, Dubliners and Portrait of the Artist and then Ulysses a bit further on. So um, where is he? Uh, he's, he's, he's one of our greats. Um, you can't, you can't ignore him. <laughs> so you might as well embrace him. <laughs> <laughs> and this, this project, I suppose, gave you a real opportunity to do that. Absolutely, it did. Yeah, it sent me back again. You know, I'd be dipping in and out down the decades, as I think um, a lot of Irish writers would be, mm. looking for inspiration and, you know, looking at those sentences. But this forced me um, to take a, cl- a closer look. Uh, so, yeah. Well, you got the final episode of <laughs> Ulysses to do, so you were looking at big long <laughs> I was in the, in the case of Molly, weren't you? I was, yeah, and uh, I mean they're glorious. Um, they're you know the role of them, uh, the way she goes on, the the I suppose the super consciousness of that unconscious, um, and also you start to think about well, it is it is Joyce's version of the female, the unruly female mind, not necessarily. Um, how the unruly female mind may work, but it is one version of it. So I started thinking about that. Um, and then the thing about <clears throat> Molly Bloom is that everybody has done her and there's been so much of Molly Bloom. So I decided I wasn't going to have Molly Bloom, but I was going to have things in Joyce's life and people in Joyce's life um, who would have inspired Ulysses and and Molly Bloom. Yeah, so we have a, a kind of a, a Nora is there yeah. with Joyce, and we then we have Homer and Penelope coming into the scene we in do. the way you can uh, on stage have these people all in yes. the same place at the same time. Yeah. Fascinating to get, you know, the four of them in the one room. Although I'm not so sure how aware Nora is of of Homer and Penelope. Yeah, well, you know, you think about Joyce's inspiration for Ulysses, so. 
I mean, you know, mm. Homer is right there. Yeah. And then you think of his inspiration for Molly Bloom. I mean, the, the chapter is called uh, the Penelope chapter, you know. So it's not it's not a great reach, really, to have them there. And it just, I think it just puts a, a different twist. And it just felt more interesting to me rather than, you know, going at the Molly Bloom material again. To just yeah. think about what would have inspired Joyce and what was going on in his life. And, you know, let's face it, um, there were huge, there were huge difficulties there. And there, you know, there were moments of, obviously there were wonderful moments of great inspiration, but like any writer, there, there, you know, there are the ups and there are Mm. the downs. And he struggled enormously with the writing and he was pilloried left, right and centre, particularly here, you know, and he had a lot of people against him. So I suppose just, Thinking about that and and just thinking about, you know, the vulnerability of the man and, and the resilience of the man and then the poet in the man and just the, the reach of the man's imagination. All of those things are just huge. And that's what I was trying to bring bits mm. of that together. I suppose, Evangelia, if you had to choose a writer uh, to, put, to put music anywhere near, Joyce almost gives you the music on this page. Did you go back to the original source? Did you go back to Ulysses or did you work solely with Marina's libretto? I went back into Ulysses uh, while I was waiting for Marina to finish her uh, libretto. Mm. But once I got Marina's libretto, I focused inclusively Mm. exclusively on Marina's words and it was all about Marina's words there and trying to make justice to them. And, and from the Joyce, from reading, from just dipping back into the Joyce while you were waiting on, on Marina to present you with what was, I suppose, near enough the finished article, what struck you about the musicality, about his work in terms of musicality? Well, there is uh, an inherent musicality in his words. A lot of composers are inspired and they write uh, mm. out of his words. Personally, I would never set any Joyce in music, <laughs> but... Uh, it's too high task f- for me, but uh, I I really enjoyed seeing uh, and understanding Joyce through Marina's writing and through the conversations with her, how she sees him. See, so it was through Marina's writing and conversation mm. that I approached Joyce for this project. It's interesting that um, Evangelia says there, Marina, about um, Joyce perhaps being not beyond your read, but there is something about Joyce, you wonder how could you put music on it, mm. there's so much already in it. You, you've, you, it's quite paired back in some ways what you have presented on the page. Is that the joy of writing a libretto? You don't have to have the big, long, Joycean sentences. Absolutely, yeah, because music, everything takes twice as long, so you need half as many words. So I love writing librettos. <laughs> you know, you can write them in a day. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, Evangelia was, was only waiting for a day or two. Is that it? <laughs> well, no, I mean, a bit more, yes, obviously, uh, before you get to the thing. Mm. But yeah, it is very pared back because the libretto, um, you know, as someone who writes mainly for the stage where they, the play is the thing, as they say, you know, as the librettist, you're way down the rung. Mm. You know, it's about the composer and it's about the singers. You know, so you and I've done a few of them, so I've Mm. learned I know my place now within the opera world. (laughs) I'm the lowly librettist, you know, (laughs) and there's a joy in that. And it can be very playful, 
Yeah, and it's interesting that that sound aspect comes up. Homer has a line uh, at one point along the way, a bit of advice for Joyce. Don't be hankering too much after meaning. <laughs> Others will come and tell you what you meant. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. The sound's the thing. Yeah. I suppose the writer in you maybe enjoyed. Others will come and tell you what they meant. Well, I'm always being told what I meant. <laughs> yeah. And I'm always being told how I got it wrong. So, yeah, I got great pleasure. <laughs> in writing that. Yeah. But the sound's the thing, I suppose, is actually this towards the end of that, whatever, aria, I suppose it would be, or, yeah. or a little section from Homer. That's an important statement. It is. That's, it's huge. It's huge because, you know, you could you could just take bits of the telephone book and if you sing if if the music is right it's going to sound glorious you know um so the words the words are secondary but because it's written in english and um evangelia has made great efforts for clarity and for the words to come through um, because sometimes some um, composers will, it'll be about the music and mm. there'll be no bones about that, no apology about it. Because very often with opera, they're doing operas from other languages. So we don't necessarily, we know the great arias. It doesn't really matter if we know mm. what the story is or we read the blur before the opera or whatever, so we get the gist of it. So um, words obviously are, are incredibly important to me. But I think what you have to think about with... Um, Writing, writing for music and writing for, for someone like Evangelia is that the <clears throat> half of the emotion and power is going to be carried, if not more, is going to be carried by the music and by the singer's performance. And what do the words provide for you then, Evangelia? You know, it, it, Marina is very... Uh, modestly handing over the, the well I'm, I'm putting all the responsibility on you in some ways lots of it what do the words give to you? Everything because I wouldn't have uh, it gave me the structure for the piece the references for the piece this uh, piece now Old Ghost has so many music references in it that I didn't see coming while I was gestating you know for the piece reading Ulysses mm waiting, guessing what it might be. So when the text arrived, then, you know, it completely opened up a world of possibilities for me. Yeah, and when, when you see Homer there, when you see Penelope there, and then you see Joyce and Nora there, did that give you any kind of guidelines in terms of maybe the styles of music that you might do? Oh. Does, do the characters have, you know, in simple terms, is there a Greek quality to Homer and Penelope and an Irish quality to J- J- James and Nora? Of course there is. And I was delighted to, you know, finally bring some Greek references unapologetically there <laughs> and try to embrace some Irish reference and Irish mm. music that I love and give me an opportunity to do that, among many other references in the piece. Um, you did work together before, which obviously went well or you wouldn't be working together yeah. for a second time. What was the, the gift was uh, was with Irish National Opera as well, wasn't it, Marina? Yeah, it was during COVID. It was a five minute, six minute Yeah, piece. 20 shots of opera that, yeah. they, that they get. Yeah, it was one of them. And that's how I started working with uh, Evangelia. It's worth saying that Evangelia is Greek. Yes, so, sorry, yeah. I should have. Yeah, when, when yeah. I was saying the Greek thing, I realised, yeah. did I say that? No, so obviously I yeah. hadn't. So it's the perfect marriage. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the Irish and the Greek. The Irish and the Greek. And of everywhere. course, our, our relationship goes goes way, way back, way all the way back to America, you know, from Thrace, from a Greek colony in Thrace, you know, etc., etc. Et yeah, Homer saying that to, to, yeah. to Joyce, saying, yeah, sure, we're cousins. <laughs> yeah, we're all cousins. <laughs> <laughs> Let's have a li- Can we listen to a little bit um, from, from the gift? Um, 
the, the main voice we'll hear, I think, speaking here is Sean McGinley. We'll also hear uh, Doreen Curran, who is in uh, this new opera. Playing Penelope. Uh, she's playing Penelope yeah. in this one. So what do I need to know about the kind of the setup, roughly, just to play a little piece of this? Uh, it's a father-daughter kind of lament, I suppose. Right, OK. So this was this was the gift, previous uh, co- uh, collaboration between Marina Carr and Evangelia Rogaki and part of the Irish National Opera's 20 Shots of Opera. She said, I'm going to Sicily, Rome, Sardinia. Try not to die before I get home. He said he'd do his best. And that's a little clip there from The Gift, one of the 20 shots of opera from, from Irish National Opera in 2020 during COVID when they put stuff up online for us all to to enjoy the librettist there, Marina Carr, the composer there, Evangelia Rogaki, and both of them with me in studio this evening talking about their upcoming project, Old Ghosts, which is the final episode of Joyce's Ulysses and the final part of the Ulysses 2.2 project. Great line in the middle of all of that, try not to die before I get, <laughs> before I get home. I say it every morning. <laughs> <laughs> but it, what strikes me there, and I'm wondering, and it struck me when I was taking a look at the libretto today, the great humour that can be in the midst of all of that. Mm. Uh, yeah. That's sometimes we don't consider, we think, oh, opera's a very lofty, high-minded art form. How dare we be funny in it? Yeah, there's that. But there's also because the music is going to extend the line. Mm. The, the joke is over before it's begun. <laughs> you know, by the time we get to the end of it, it's five minutes and it's not funny anymore. So it's, it's, it's all about timing. And um, because there, Sean McGinley, the wonderful Sean McGinley is speaking, you know, yeah. and then Doreen is singing, you know, yeah, so and that 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 works really well in opera as well. I think a speaker and an actor and a singer. But we have four singers that we have. We have four singers yeah. this time because I wanted to. I wanted singing. I wanted everything sung. Yeah. This time. And so, as well as the four singers, the four singers. What kind of musical forces are you using, Evangelia? I'm using a saxophone, an extensive percussion set, harp, cello, and double bass. And the and the harp now. Are you and the harp. To, yeah, yeah. Are yeah. you going to claim that as a Greek instrument? Are you using a Greek version of harp, or is it an Irish harp? Both. Ah. <laughs> yeah. Ever the diplomat. Yeah. <laughs> so will there, will there actually be, um, you know, both the, the kind of the steel strings and the classical gut string or what way are you doing that? Yeah, I don't want to give away too much oh. because there is also Monteverdi reference in the piece running throughout from his uh, Il Ritorno di Ulisse in Patria. Mm. So, you know. Yeah, so you don't want you don't want to give too much away in terms of that. But what I will say, you talked about the unruly female and 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 uh, or at least Joyce's version of it. Mm. I noticed that Penelope is not at all happy <laughs> with what either Joyce has to say about her, or indeed what Homer had to say about her. No, why should she be? I mean, it's just it's just their version. She's not having it. She has the real story. It happened to her, so we get her version of events. Um, I've always had a problem with. Um, Odysseus or Ulysses, mm. you know, he's a, he's a lunatic, putting it mildly. Um, and he's been so celebrated, um, you know, in literature and in the in society as, you know, the great wandering hero. But actually, you look at what he does. It's pretty terrible. You know, it's a catalogue of mm. atrocities. So I wanted her just to talk about that, this this yeah. madman arriving home. And say what actually happened. Hanging all the maids and slaughtering left, right and centre and <clears throat> trying to 
trick her out and yeah, etc. Payback time. <laughs> yeah, well, not pay so much payback. Look, this is what happened. Yeah. Well, yeah. listen, it, it makes for an interesting reading and I'm sure it would make for interesting listening as well. Thanks to both of you for, for coming in to speak with us this evening. That's Evangelia Regaki and Marina Carr. And uh, the piece that we've been speaking about is called Old Ghosts. It runs at Molly, the Museum of Literature Ireland in Dublin from the 2nd through until the 4th of February. And you can find out full details on ulysses22.ie. There we go, and Marina Carr just telling me as she was going out the road that it is going to be recorded as well and it will be available uh, to watch on Opera Vision, so watch out for that when the time comes. Themes of art, addiction and avarice converge in Laura Poitras' Oscar-nominated documentary feature All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. The film focuses in on the American photographer Nan Golden, major figure in contemporary art, of course, not least for her groundbreaking images depicting queer life in the US in the late 70s and 80s. Her work is held in the permanent collections of galleries around the world, including the Met in New York and the National Portrait Gallery and Tate in London. In 2017, her work was at the Irish Museum of Modern Art, including her seminal 1985 slideshow, The Ballad of Sexual Dependency. Laura Poitras won an Oscar for her previous film, Citizen Four, which was about Edward Snowden. And with all the beauty and the bloodshed, she takes her starting point, as her starting point, Nan Golden's very personal crusade against the billionaire Sackler family, benefactors of museums around the world and owners of Purdue Pharma, the company behind OxyContin, a drug which to which Nan Golden, like so many others, became addicted. Along with a group of fellow recovered a- addicts and family members, Nan set out to make major artistic institutions like the Met and the Louvre face up to the source of the Sackler's money. The film has several narrative strands, Nan Golden's tragic family history, her artistic formation, her addiction. It's also a portrait of queer life in the US in the 70s and 80s. And it's a film about the billionaire Sackler family and the American OxyContin epidemic. When I spoke to Oscar winner and current nominee Laura Laura Poitras about her latest film, I asked her which of these strands was the one that brought the story together and made the project happen. I mean, I think what started all off for me is uh, Nan, you know, a renowned artist whose work is collected by all these museums. Every every museum she's protesting in, you know, has Nan, Nan Golden in the permanent collection, and that she was using her power in the space to seek accountability and um, and uh, con- confront the Sacklers and you know essentially try to bring this billionaire family down and get their name out of the museums. Like, there's no business in having blood money in museums. And when we say Nan Golden and, and I mean, the fact that she's in all those museums that you mentioned and art galleries that you mentioned, we know the kind of uh, status that she has. But how yeah. would you describe her work and what it has achieved across the decades? Yeah, I mean, I appreciate that because, you know, there is that one thread of the story is the Sackler story. But like, you know, the real heart of the film is about Nan as an artist. And, and that is, as you say, it's like you know the she's a groundbreaking photographer who um created this whole vocabulary of visual storytelling through slideshows and she photographs her friends her the people that she you know, she photographs her lovers her friends her roommates it's very much also a sort of celebration of 
queer identity. Um, and it's, mm. it's a very counterculture, you know, it's counterculture, but, you know, just basically saying like, we don't care about what, you know, normative society we're going to, you know, we're going to, you know, live life differently. And, and she's done that throughout her career. Um, and the fact that she's the one who decided to take on these, you know, this billionaire family, is not, it's also not a surprise because she's been playing by her own rule book for a long time. Yeah. Well, her own rule book started with the way that she, she took pictures because yeah. essentially when she started taking those pictures in the, I suppose, the 70s and 80s or maybe late 60s even, it was happening as well. She was kind of, just taking what looked like, and I'm making large inverted commas over over the microphone here, looked like ordinary pictures of just people, you know, kind of her friends and her pals. But there's something else going on in those pictures. Well, for sure. I mean, she talks about in the in the film really clearly. Um, you know, when she was in you know, a young teenager, she stopped talking. She she dealt with um, the tragedy of her older sister's suicide, and she talks about not speaking, like literally not speaking for for months, and that the camera gave her a voice. And, you know, through that voice, she started filming her friends. And um, and so there is this, like, intimacy that I think was just um, a revelation uh, if, in the art world in terms of how she was photographing. And you see that in the film because she's been saving her, her archive since she was a teenager. So we have her very first photographs of her, of her dear friend, David Armstrong. And, you know, so, you know, beautiful, queer, androgynous. It's just so rare for, for me as a documentary filmmaker to, to be able to tell a story like this. It's, I mean, it's, it's a real coming-of-age story. And, and so delightful, I would have thought, when, yeah. when that archive was presented to you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the title of the film, you know, is All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, and there's a lot of beauty in it. And, you know, sometimes I, I know that I'm talking a lot about, uh, about the Sacklers, but I think um, there's, there's so much about the film that, that sort of celebrates art and, you know, people who are outsiders and who, who just create a different world. And, yeah. and that started, I suppose, her, her childhood, Nan Golden's childhood, was not without its difficulties, let's face it, not least of which was the death by suicide of, of her sister. It was a difficult family situation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, um, f you know, foregrounded in the film. I mean, she sort of jokes at one point in the film, like, I got thrown out of, you know, every every family, every house, every school that I ever went to, and I'm proud of it, you know. And, and she, that's, that, that's Nan. Uh, she, she doesn't consider herself a victim, and, and, um, and she's proud of her sort of rebellious nature and, and where it comes from. And the, the film does focus on this real tragedy of her, of her sister, because her sister was about you know, a little bit less than 10 years older, coming of age at a time where it wasn't okay for young women to be sexual, it wasn't okay to sort of be um, rebellious. And she was, she was ultimately institutionalized. And I think Nan is kind of, you know, saying no to all of that. And the, the title of the documentary comes. actually comes from her sister. Yeah, I mean, the title is um, when her sister was institutionalized, there, she was given a, a Rorschach test and, and the woman, the person who was taking notes wrote down that she, she sees all the beauty and the bloodshed. Then you get into another, another strand of the story that could be a whole documentary in and of itself. The art world of 1970s, 1980s, 80s, New yeah. York. What a yeah. colourful, wild, hedonistic, mad place. <laughs> I love the story of how Nan chose not to go to, you know, some gallery and find a representation, but just, you know, was working at a bar in, in Times Square called Tin Pan Alley that was run by this radical feminist, Maggie Smith, who created a bar, hired former sex workers, 
didn't hire you know male bouncers, wanted to ran it by what she describes as female strength. And it was a space where artists came and where people from the neighborhood came, where the IRS, where people, you know, newscasters and news and reporters, and it all existed together. And, you know, that was where Nan started also at the same time showing her slideshows, you know, for her friends. And, and those slideshows were like their own happenings. They were events. Yeah. However, it does, the, the, the addiction, and we get a sense that Nan has had difficulties along the way with, with you know, different drugs, but the real problems arise when OxyContin comes along. Yeah, I mean, Nan's been very vocal, um, you know, you see it both vocal talking about her work, but then also in the in the photographs um, themselves. Um, so, but, but OxyContin was, a, you know, this was a, this was a shift and what happened in this story is that, you know, and I'll go to a different sort of parallel story of, mm. of the film, which is the Sacklers. And the sort of the patriarch of the family is Arthur Sackler. And he was a, a psychiatrist and he but he also was an ad man. He did he did advertisement. And he at some point realized that selling ads to doctors was a way to make money. And he did it with Valium, and he did it very successfully. Um, he created a medical journal, and but the but the medical journal didn't exist to like publish information about medicine, mm. but it, it to, but to hold ads, and then that playbook gets repeated um, with with OxyContin. And uh, Nan Golden then in 2018, and I just love the effect that this essay had. It was an essay in a, in a magazine called Art Forum. How, how how wide a readership would that have had? How how much in the I suppose the, the general public consciousness would, would that magazine have been? I mean, art form is a very influential publication in the art world. Mm. So for museums, collectors, people like the Sacklers, everybody would would have gotten art form. And and, and Nan publishes this essay, which is basically her dec- declaration of war against the Sacklers. Let's listen to, because she reads from the essay in the documentary, let's have a listen to a part of the essay as she reads it to us. I survived the opioid crisis. I narrowly escaped. My relationship to OxyContin began several years ago in Berlin. It was originally prescribed for surgery. Though I took it as directed, I got addicted overnight. In the beginning, 40 milligrams was too strong, but as my habit grew, there was never enough. I went from three pills a day as prescribed to 18. The drug, like all drugs, lost its effect, so I picked up the straw. My life revolved entirely around getting and using oxy. Counting and recounting, crushing and snorting was my full-time job. And that's Nan Golden with the essay that was published in Art Forum magazine in January of uh, 2018. Uh, and that is a clip from the film All the Beauty and the Bloodshed and its director, Laura Poitras, is with me in, in studio this evening. It's she, she states it so matter-of-factly, but that was a story... It was, it was happening to Nan Golden, well-known artist, but it was happening so widely 
across America, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the overdose crisis has been going on for a long time in the U.S., I mean, really from the early 2000s. So we're talking over two decades. And it's first started in smaller com- communities like West Virginia and Maine, usually poor um, communities didn't get a lot of attention because it was poor communities, but it did get some attention because it was largely white communities, and then it sort of spread beyond that. Um, there were journalists who raised alarms early on and said that, that we have a problem here and, and pointed to Oxy, OxyContin and Purdue Pharma, which is owned by the Sacklers, but nobody did anything. And it just now is, you know, out of control. Um, so it really fueled the overdose crisis. And in the, the what what the Sacklers did is they went about this very aggressive marketing campaign, where they managed to convince the U.S. government's um, FDA, which sort of approves drugs, to sort of downplay the addictive properties of these mm. opioids. So then it get it get prescribed for things like back pain. And, you know, like knee injuries, things where you really don't want to, you know, bring a strong opioid and and people got addicted overnight. And it just sort of it just sort of spun out of control. And so when when Nan experienced it, you know, I mean, I think her when she got off of it, she was kind of like this, you know, this needs to stop. You know, this is a dangerous drug. And then she, you know, formed this organization mm. called PAIN, which is, uh, stands for Prescription Addiction Intervention Now. Yeah, it's a wonderful acronym. It, yeah, it yeah. really it is, is a very clever yeah. But that kind of gets to the heart of what this film showed me uh, at any rate, which is yeah, that acronym says it in some ways. These were creative, in, in, intelligent, artistic people who were involved yeah. in PAIN, that organization, who had these wonderful ideas around how you might use your creativity, your mm-hmm. artistic endeavours, how you might use that yep. as activism. Yeah, very small group of people, um, usually no more than 12 at any given time. And they would meet in Nan's living room on Wednesday nights. They'd order in pizza and then they would plot. They would you know, decide what to do, where to do the next demonstration. And very much inspired by the work of ACT UP, which um, from the, the AIDS crisis, those mm. who um, lived through that will know ACT UP's work well, which was also, you know, the, their, their motto was silence equals death. And and you showed there's a wonderful section in the film as well where we go to that period, you know, in and around the AIDS uh, epidemic and uh, an art exhibition that Nan Golden curated, uh, where it was uh, it, those who were going to be exhibited or yeah. who she would chose to exhibit would either have have AIDS or have be very closely involved with those who had AIDS, yeah, which were her very close friends. Yeah. I mean, Nan experienced devastating loss um, through the the AIDS crisis. Um, so many people died, and she did this show, and it was. You know, typical Nan was unapologetic. It celebrated sexuality, queer sexuality, gay sexuality, and but also recognized the the legacy of this community that was mm. um, that was dying um, uh, around, and and the government was doing nothing. And so, I wanted to put there's a parallel between Nan doing something around AIDS. And then, you know, her choice to do something about the Sacklers. You yeah, know? It, it, it struck me that maybe she had learned certain ways of, of 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 being an activist in that period that she was involved in, in and around the 80s and the AIDS crisis that she uses here uh, to fight yeah. To fight the whole the whole Sackler family, I, I think I think there's a learning, but I also think that you know Nan is really driven by like her experience and like she couldn't stay silent. She yeah. her friends were dying. I mean, the, the before the night before the witnesses show opened, that's in the film, this big exhibition about her friends. One of her closest friends, you know, she went to her memorial the day before the opening. I mean, that was the reality. Like people mm. were. Uh, 
were it was devastating. And so I think Nan felt that she needed to take a stand, and you know she did the same thing yeah. um, around Oxley. So here we are. She this essay goes out in Art Forum magazine. I think nobody could have imagined the effect yeah, that it, that it, essay would have had. I mean, it it from in the in the sort of art world circles, it was a big surprise and shocking for a number of things. One, that she was like speaking so openly about her addiction to OxyContin um, and then declaring war against the Sacklers. And so there was a sense of like, oh, this, you know, to use an art magazine to to have this very political message was was rare. And then it goes beyond using an art magazine into actually using the art itself. And this is where I come back to this, the, yeah. the creativity yeah. uh, so, of yeah. these people in the in the group, in yeah. pain, yeah. As, so, as it is called. Yeah. So, you know, this is a group of, of, of artists and creative troublemakers who decide to, you know, stage these protests that, you know, are spectacular They're, and, and disruptive and beautiful and poetic and, you know, focused on shaming the Sacklers. And so the first one they did was at the Metropolitan Museum. They snuck in um, on, I think it was a Saturday night or early afternoon. Mm. They yeah. all had to sneak in. Like they snuck in all their cameras. They snuck in all these. Yeah. They, they took uh, and into the Sackler wing of the, the yeah. of the gallery. Yeah, into the, right the Sackler wing, the Temple of Dender, this grand gallery, and they all they they created um, hundreds of pill bottles where they created this fake prescription. Then launched this protest and mm. and started throwing these um, pill bottles into the the inside of this museum way. Very powerful, very powerful image and just those those uh, floating plastic bottles on on the the moat. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and then and then they did a die and they all lie down yeah. and but the Guggenheim was the one where they, they talk about <laughs> using your own words to kind of hang exactly. you. What did Richard Seckler say? This so, is one of right. the younger Secklers now. Isn't no, no, it? this is the... Well, is yeah, he a brother right, of right, ours? Right, you're right. It's, it's not the brother. It's the, the next generation down. Mm. But Richard Sackler, who was really the mastermind of the OxyContin mm. sales strategy. There was a, a court case and it revealed documents. And early on when OxyContin was released, he said something to the effect of, we are going to create a prescription. Um, a, blizzard, a, a blizzard. A blizzard of, of prescriptions. A blizzard of prescriptions across this country, which for him translated into money. Yeah. But for you know, Nan Golden yeah. and the members of Pain, <laughs> right. it translated into something totally it's, else. It's like they took that and they said, OK, we're going to create our own blizzard. And then they took quotes from Richard Sackler and they created these prescription slips and printed thousands of them in little pieces of paper and then went to the Guggenheim Museum and, and uh, sent um, the the, all the activists up up the rotunda and then so there are several levels of yeah. balcony the whole way up Circular, the rotunda yeah. Yeah, yeah and then started dropping off these prescription yeah. slips and creating this beautiful spectacle of of a you know a blizzard of prescription slips with Richard Sackler's own words well let's let you, you can imagine these piece these the, the blizzard of slips falling down as we listen to this is this is from the members of pain members of the the acting the activist group talking about the day in the Guggenheim just how nervous they were about what they were doing. The Sacklers are still whitewashing their reputation. The museums are still complicit in that. The energy was definitely right. The whole museum was already buzzing when we went in. Um, it was a packed Saturday night. No, where is everyone? We had a signal thread, but it was really like, go at this time if you see prescriptions falling. It's starting. Are we ready? Yeah.
at the bottom looking up and I checked out for a minute because I was looking up at the prescription slips and just like in awe of the visual that it created. I was holding one of the banners. We look like we're hundreds and hundreds of activists. People are shouting with us. They're agreeing with us. It's chilling, right? It certainly is uh, chilling. Is right, Laura Poitras, director of all the beauty and the bloodshed from which we, we got that clip and the visuals with that. I mean, when you see those yeah. blizzards of prescriptions falling down, yeah. it is spectacular. It, it's a wonderful use. You know, people say, what can art do? There's an example of yeah. how art and activism can really work together. Yeah, and, and you know, obviously this is something, you know, there were, there were people who went to, to, to the Guggenheim that afternoon to see the art and they got some, you know, additional art that they, they didn't expect did. to see, you know. It, this documentary has had such a phenomenal set of stories. Um, is it surprising that it is the winner of the Golden Lion for Best Film at the Venice Film Festival. Is it surprising that is nominee for Best Documentary in the Academy Awards and here in Ireland we will wish you the best with that because you're not up against any Irish film <laughs> in that category. Lucky for you. Otherwise I wouldn't even be talking And we also have the participation of uh, Vivian Dick. Vivian Dick, yes. of course, yes, to get the Irish because some exactly. of her films, as you say, are, are in the midst of your film. Nominee for Best Documentary at BAFTA. Nominee Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Documentary at the DGA Awards nominee Best International Feature Film at the BIFA Awards. I mean, what do they mean for you? You know... Uh, the I, fact that you're already an Academy Award winner as well, of course, for your Snowden documentary, Citizen Four. Yeah, I mean, first of all, the the Venice um, Award, this was for Best Film, and it, it, my uh, this was the only film, the only documentary playing in competition against the fiction film. So that that was really meaningful for me because I really believe that documentary is cinema. You go, you I mean you sit down to watch a documentary, you know, that it's that it's cinema. It's not just about the, a message or something. So that was incredibly meaningful, and and you know the recognition of one's peers. That's something that. I am very moved by, and I'm also very moved by the other films that have been nominated, you know, and very excited about all the Irish films that are nominated. (laughs) And I I got to um, meet um, some of them at at Venice. All right, very good. And and just in in, in terms of, I mentioned that you are an Academy Award winner for Citizen Four about Edward Snowden. Is there a particular type of character? Or is you know if you look at Edward Snowden and you look at Nan Golden, are there are there links between those two characters that you you can see why you wanted to make mm-hmm. documentaries about both of them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are clear links between them. I mean, I am I seem to be drawn to people who are you know troublemakers who are exposing abuses of power and taking risks to do it. Laura, absolutely wonderful to have spoken with you this evening. Thanks so much for coming into us. Yeah, it's great to be here. Grant, congrats on the film and best of luck at the Oscars. And I'm rooting for all the Irish nominees. Yeah, quite right. Laura Poitras, director of All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. Scottish poet Don Patterson grew up in a working class council estate in Dundee, or schemies as they were called. There he played with other children in a wasteland called The Dump. And to amuse themselves, they engaged in what were euphemistically called 
toy fights. But these fights were far from make-believe and the violence of Don's childhood fuels his memoir. In fact, Toy Fights takes its title from that childhood activity. The book is funny, it's angry and it's deeply moving with the award-winning poet describing how his background shaped his life for good and ill and I'm delighted to be joined by Don Patterson on the programme this evening. Um, the schemies, as they were called uh, in, in Dundee, Don, you, you talk about them and you talk about the poverty and the kind of the effect that poverty uh, poverty had on families and, and children at that time. Bring us back and kind of give us a a pen picture of the sort of place that it was. It's sort of hard to describe the you know the poverty because no one really saw it as that at the time because we were all in much the same boat, you know. So it, it was um it was a pretty kind of low background home that everybody did their best to drown out. I think through the usual kind of working class analgesics, you know. So everyone was sugar addicted, and there were a lot of problems with alcohol, and there was a lot of problems that I talk about in the book with debt, you know, which is uh, one of the main ways of covering it up. But you did your best not to hear that kind of drone of you know sort of of being broke and you know sort mm. of and in debt as much as you can but um yeah we weren't really aware of it because we were all picking up coal you know sort of the you know from the from the lorry that spilled it on the road or whatever so yeah and, and yeah. You, you mentioned there about debt and it's one of the strands of the books is, is you talk about two addictions in your mother's case to, to hp or higher purchase she was kind of addicted to buying stuff and putting it on the on the never never as it's again euphemistically called and indeed a kind of sugar addiction uh, as well, and you know, I, both things kind of make me laugh, made me laugh when I read about them. But these are incredibly serious topics that you're treating in a very humorous way. I, I think it's just, I mean, that was an aspect of the book I was hoping would be a kind of anecdotal social history, but but also looking at a very contemporary problem like sugar addiction. You know, there are reasons no one ever taxes sugar properly, um, because for as much as diabetes costs cost the NHS in the UK, you know, sort of longevity would cost them an awful lot more. So there's no real incentive, you know, to, to you know to get poor folks off it. But my mother does use it like so many of her of her friends, and it's something that I've inherited, you know, uh, you know, as a as a kind of anaesthetic. Um, uh, you know, which which is is funny because of the different crazy forms that it takes. But you know, but as a kind of phenomenon, this is completely depressing. You know, and, and the, the tablet and tablet has to be an inverted commas there. The tablets that your mother used to make, I presume these were full of sugar. You might explain what they were, and her kind of minor kind of it's it's minor drug dealing almost. You could say she was at on the street corner. It's a Scottish delicacy. I don't. I don't know. You know, just, uh, there'll be local equivalents. It's like a kind of fudge, but it's much more intensely sweet, and you get it from condensing condensed milk and then condensing it again until it takes a semi-solid form. So it's just like it's absolute mainline sugar. It's insane, you know. And it's just, and you're high as a kite after a bite. Um, but my an ex, uh, uh, my ex partner who was from Manhattan pointed out that the way my mother sold it, which was taped up in brown paper parcel, and and you know and and cut into slices and sold in a plastic Ziploc bag was exactly the, the the same way you would buy brown heroin in the South Bronx. So, <laughs> so my, my mother basically owned the corner where they sold the good stuff, you know. <laughs> and and was she, did was she did she guard her ground very or her her patch very carefully? 
She regarded the rest, not a recipe, because the recipe involves nothing but milk and sugar, but she regarded the alchemical process very carefully. So to this day, we're not entirely sure what goes on, but it's all timing and stirring and waiting and pausing, and you know. but it's a very specific recipe. Yeah, I, I Procedure. Flicked, yeah, I, I, I went to, surely there's an appendix here with mum's recipe, but nah, you didn't give it to us. Yeah, she'll take passion. it to her grave, yeah. <laughs> now, now, Toy Fights, the title of the memoir itself, um, Oh, it's almost frightening to read about these. Just explain what they were, and 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 you see, as you say yourself, even the mention of them makes the blood drain from you. It was a, it was the last game called in the roster in the afternoon with the kids because we played in the street all the time because the television was dreadful in the seventies. But um, it was basically a kind of half hour of violence without pretext and it was called toy because it, you weren't supposed to take it seriously but basically it just consisted of battering the person that was nearest to you and and it would stop when um half the kids were in tears or in the morgue or whatever you know but it was just a, it wasn't a game um it was it was a it was a way of tapping off some intergenerational violence or something, you know, yeah. under the pretext of a game, I think, you know. Yeah, um, but, I, I yeah. wondered about that, you know, did you kind of look into the psychology of that? Do you, do you think it was some way of actually dealing with a repressed anger or an anger that had to be expressed somewhere? I, you don't have to look in too deeply to find out its origin. You know, it was all that sort of stuff that was inherited from men coming back from the war and just like, and, and you know, and not having ways of dealing with their, 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 their superfluity or their masculinity, you know, and that led to all sorts of, you know, sort of uh, displaced violence and, and, um, and addiction, you know. So, so that was kind of present. It wasn't sort of, it didn't make for a miserable time. I should point mm. this out. This mm. isn't a misery memoir. No. You know, this is about how kind of well-adjusted and happy most of the most of the families on the estate were while having to live with this kind of undercurrent of, you know, sort of poverty and violence, basically, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and that's what, that is what's quite extraordinary about it, is that, as I say, really serious topics and all of those kind of psychological issues going on in the background, but always treated with such humour, even down to your own breakdown in, in your teens. You might explain just how dark a period that was for you even though again you describe this with huge humor in the in the book uh, i think a lot of kids go through something similar but in my case it was an unfortunate convergence of you know several you know other alignment of several bad planets really you know one of which was i had a heavy brush with uh evangelical christianity so i kind of recovered from that you know and then i, I was taking a lot of drugs um, and that led to a kind of full-on uh, schizophrenic episode. So I was hospitalised for about four or five months. Um, so yeah, that was the <laughs> that was the hardest episode mm. to find much humour in. But you know, you, but, you know when you yeah, you, you do still manage to get a, a few laughs. That you have, well, you can laugh at yourself in in uh, at a distance now. But was it difficult to write actually to face that period in your life? That was about that together with the religious mania, I think, were the two episodes that it was really hard to write about. And and, and I'd realised when I started, I'd quite deliberately been putting it off and refusing to, to remember those things at all. Yeah, so they, they, those were the hardest to dig up. And that, that uh, brush with uh, the Pentecostal church, did that come from your mother's side? 
that's a tr- that took me a while to figure out. My my mother's side, my mum was a daughter of the manse, you know, so she was raised in a, in really even worse poverty than the estate, but in a vicarage, you know, so she had all the appearance of being middle class, but of course my grandfather, a minister, um, uh, earned a, an absolute pittance. Um, so, but from the religious perspective, yeah, I was very keen for neurotic reasons to please to please my mother so i you know so i was keen to join the church on the other hand as an adolescence i really wanted to be a worry to my parents so i managed to find a you know a strand of the church that was far more extreme than they could possibly be comfortable with so um so it worked both ways it worked for everybody somehow and yet nobody yeah yeah i know when you were on a while back you were speaking about your collection your recent portrait collection the arctic called after a pub in dundee in fact that has that that has that particular name poems in there about your father a gigging musician and he and your your mother in fact sometimes took you to those gigs with them as a small child how important was that musical influence on you do you think Oh, critical. I mean, just, I mean, utterly formative. And I think I didn't quite appreciate it at the time, but I benefited from two things, which was, you know, my, my first, my, or my parallel career has been as a jazz musician, but I, my father took me out on the road when I was 14 or 15 as a, an accompanist to him. So I was gigging from quite an early age. But from the age of about one year old, you know, I was dumped in the pram at the back of the folk club that he ran as well. So I was exposed to kind of, you know, that, that amazing constellation, you know, uh, uh, of talent in the British folk revival in the 60s as well. You know, so I listened to the incredible string band and John Martin and whatnot when I was like, you know, 18 months old. Yeah. So so, it was, so good fortune, really. Yeah. And how long is it um, from the, the when, it, when your father died? How, how long ago is it now? I'll be coming up for four years this year. Yeah. So was his death, I mean, obviously it led into the, the collection of poems because his death and, and, and a praise of him is all over that uh, collection. But I, I think his death was part of what kind of caused this memoir to come into existence at all. I, I mean, I should confess, I mean, the memoir was commissioned about 15 years ago and I did that terrible thing, which is I just spent the advance on a guitar as it happens and then just and then just forgot about the book and hoped that everyone else would forget about it. But um, I just haven't lost interest in myself, really. But my dad died and, and well, actually, it's a funny thing because it's to do with his dementia and the fact that the last thing he could remember were songs um, and you could remember what guitar he played in any given year. That was the other thing. Um and from that, I think I got the idea. It was just a lovely thing that he gave me, really, um, that I could recall everything if I could remember what I'd been listening to. So if I, if I could remember that I'd been listening to the Osmonds' Crazy Horses when I was 10 years old, you know, I could I could summon up everything else that was happening at the time. Or if I could remember what I was listening to when I was in hospital, you know, I could recall the experience. So I, I stole his kind of mnemonic trick, really, you know, from his dementia, weirdly. And I think too was a you you talked about you wanted to give your as an adolescent and what else should any adolescent be doing but kind of thinking of working out ways to give their parents a hard time, but was was there some sense in which and I know you're hardly an adolescent now and you're well past that, but did you want to make amends in some ways to to, to the relationship with your father in the writing of this book? I did. It was not that I mean not that we weren't very close latterly. Um, but I've, I was mortifyingly embarrassed to recall how I treated him in my teens. 
because I think a lot of young men to feel the need to individuate from their father and go through all that eatable nonsense about having a kind of hate them. But unfortunately, my father had, he gave you so little to work with. He was such a beautiful man, you know, but yet I managed it. I managed to, to turn against him, you know, and to have to create distance between us. And, and when I think now of how much it hurt him, given that he was holding down two jobs just to keep the family afloat, I mean, just two jobs, you know, and mm. no holidays for you know, over a decade, you know. Um, my ingratitude just it's, it's, it just makes me blush to think about. But um, I think, yeah, I just took him for granted, which is such a compliment to his parenting, really, you know, but to take a man like that for granted. But also I wondered, um, and again, without getting into trying to psychoanalyse you, but um, primary school and school in general sounded like a pretty pretty nasty experience, particularly in terms of corporal punishment. And again, a kind of casual violence that seemed to be constantly present. Yeah, well, it was still in, uh, in yeah, there was still, <laughs> but primary school was fine, um, you know, the, although there was belting then, mm. there was a lot, but I went to a very rough secondary school, it's actually a very decent school now, Baldragon, I should say, yeah. in its defence, um, but, uh, you know, but banning cor- corporal punishment definitely helped that, but my, my, my school was merged with a young offenders institution, seriously, you know, they merged the two places, you know, and um, and the Borstal kids were terrified uh, when it really should have been the other way around. So it was a fairly rough place. That said, you know, um, a Scottish education was was uh, rigorously pursued. You know, so you you know, you'd uh, you might end up, uh, you know, sort of wrecked and you know physically abused by the experience. But you know, you knew about the South Sea Bubble and you knew about Latin and you could play the clarinet. You know, so. <laughs> Swings and roundabouts. Yeah, rigorous has rigorous has a lot of meanings in there, <laughs> I think, for sure. What is it with dentistry and your family and your own story? Dentistry. Yeah, there's uh, a lot about. Oh. There's a few, There's a couple of t- decent stories about teeth in the book, particularly your mom. Was it was it she who got all of her teeth removed before the, her wedding, or was that your grandmother? Uh, no, I'm pretty sure it was more. That was one of these details. It was so good, I failed to corroborate it. She'll be furious if that's wrong. It may have been my granny, but I gather that was something that they did at the time. You know, just made a nice clean start with a, a new set of ashes. Um, so uh, yeah, I hadn't. There is a dental theme. It was the site of some of my early trauma. Um, you know, I've, I've had terrible experiences with dentists on account of the sugar that would often involve the removal of many teeth at once, um, often by children, um, because in Dundee there's a big dental training hospital, so they they used bairns to practice on, um, you know, because it was baby teeth, so it didn't really matter, you know, but it should have given them some pause that they were in the heads of children, but it didn't seem to, you know, stop them just using them to get their eye in. And as you're doing it there again, even though it sounds horrific, you manage to kind of laugh at it in in some ways. However, you do say yourself that um, memory is a very unreliable um, tool. Now, can you trust what you remember yourself? I know you've told me that you just think of the music and everything comes flowing back, but can you trust what you're telling us yourself? Two-part answer. I suppose the first bit is because you know about how the memory works, just neuroscientifically, what you remember are memories of memories. I mean, they're just stories you've told yourself and, you know, quite distance from, you know, from both the memory and what the truth might have actually been. But I think when you're writing autobiography, I felt obliged to get it half right. So I did try to corroborate most of what I wrote. So I did interview my mother and, you know, and, and did talk to family. Um, and then and just opted for the best story, you know. But um, 
but you know, I think it's uh, broadly accords um, with the truth, at least the emotional truth, because I had to change so many details for legal reasons. So there's much in the way of change names and composites. Right. Okay. So, uh, but I, no, all of that. But it did happen pretty much the way it went down. Unfortunately. Back yeah. to the poems. You're you're only up to the age of twenty. Is it back to the poems now, or have we another volume of the memoir to come? I'll see how this goes down. Um, and if, if I get the slightest bit of encouragement, I might do the next <laughs> 15 years. But um, again, for legal reasons, it, it may have to be done as science fiction or something. I don't know how I'll get I'll wait for a lot of folk to die. We'll see how it goes. Great. Well, listen, thanks for speaking to us this evening, Don. Good to talk to you, Sean. That's uh, Don Patterson there. And Don's memoir is called Toy Fights. It's published by Faber. And that brings uh, Monday night's arena to a finish. Our researchers this evening, Leah Murphy, Paulie Shields, Amandine Passa-Divine, Michelle Gibson was the broadcast coordinator, Tommy O'Sullivan was on sound this evening and tonight's programme produced by Kay Sheehy. Talk to you tomorrow night, 7 o'clock here on RT Radio 1. And John Creedon is back in the seat. He'll be with you after the news.